Check the podcast where two brothers embark on a thrilling journey through the realms of scientific inquiry, the enigmatic mysteries of the past, and the uncharted territories of spirituality. Join us as we explore the wonders of our world and beyond, all while embracing the roles of curious bystanders rather than experts. Together, we'll unravel the intricate tapestry of existence, blending the dichotomies of knowledge and wonder. Get ready to question, ponder, and delve into the dualities that shape our understanding of reality on Duality Check. I'm Drew. And I'm Dean. Welcome back for another week. Yeah, today is episode eight. Woohoo. Getting closer Getting to that. To the decade of episodes. Yeah, a decade of episodes is right. <laughs> we set that goal for ourselves and we are getting close. Heck yeah. And we've got many more episodes planned beyond that, of course. But Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about libertarianism. And before you tune out, if you're... <laughs> this is not meant to be like a current events, politics... Right. Uh, I don't really subscribe to the left or the right. Well, we'll talk about that as part of this. Sure. But uh, I'm not here to offend anyone or tell anyone they're wrong or stupid and how I'm right and everyone's wrong. We're just here to explore some ideas that maybe you haven't heard before. Um, so hopefully it can uh, open up your mind to a new way of thinking about uh, this world and how it works. Yeah, so Dean's pretty studied on the libertarian view and the libertarian um, yeah, point of view. And uh, I have gotten some of the ideas in my head, mostly from you and some mm-hmm. of the other stuff I've listened to. But yeah, I'm more of the <laughs> every man in this scenario where I'm going to try to you know, ask some questions and try to get to the root of, at least try to put, put some scenarios out there as and see what we can come up with yeah. to talk about. So before we get started, we do have an email from a listener that we would like to uh, read off here. Yep. Um, he doesn't say we can use his name, so this will be anonymous listener. Um, yeah, if you're listening to this one or the last one that we mentioned your uh, email, let us know if you want to use your name and if you specifically don't. Obviously, yeah. we're we're gonna be uh, anyone who doesn't say it's feel free to use my name. Yeah. Then we yeah. won't. But if you say so, we we will. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, this go this he writes. Uh, Hello, gentlemen. I have another subject. This is the same guy that uh, recommended the uh, the YouTube page. Yeah, that YouTube channel. What was that one called? My lunch break. Yep. Yeah. Uh, anyway, hello, gentlemen. I have another subject I thought you might be interested. David Paulides is an ex-police officer from New York who came, ac- came across this in 2001 while staying at Yosemite Park. A park ranger told him that hundreds of people go missing every year from the national park system with no explanation as to who or why. In fact, the government doesn't even keep a missing persons list, which is interesting to begin with. 
The books that David has written are called Missing 411. Anyway, I just thought you guys might be interested. It was a podcast topic, and we are. We definitely are. I'm actually going to add that to the podcast topic list now. We've, we've talked about this off the, off the air before, mm-hmm. and we've also consumed some con- like some YouTube videos on it as well. But yeah, no, it's definitely something we'd like to talk yeah, about. Yeah, the Missing 411 stuff is really interesting. It's like... Uh, it's pretty confusing and it's specifically cases that are picked out like and profiled in such a way that like there is no real clean conventional solution or explanation right 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 it's interesting that it's a lot of it, cases I, that I'm, defy I'm logic in yeah, a certain I'm curious way. if the government doesn't keep missing pers- persons records for specifically national parks because they got to keep missing yeah, persons. Yeah, it's the national it's the National Park Service that doesn't keep missing persons cases. Okay. For people that get lost in in their parks, gotcha. Right, so you can't go to them and ask for they a assume database. They by a bear. In fact, uh, I think it was uh, David Pauletes who approached them and asked them like where's the list and i believe they sent him a quote for like like a million or two dollars that it would need for the information request in order for them to like fund all the work and effort and labor to like assemble a list uh which yeah, is that's ridiculous. pretty crazy <laughs> that's crazy yeah but yeah no thanks for the email we'll definitely uh we'll definitely have to do some more research but we'll definitely make that a topic in the Heck future yeah. Yeah. appreciate you emailing us yeah, I'll have to read those books myself. I've just heard people talk about them, but yeah. I haven't like dug into the case files myself before. Cool. Anyway, so yeah, so on to the wanna, topic. Do you have something you wanted to start with this, or? Um, yeah. So let me just give like a super rough, like non-specific intro. So when I say libertarianism, I'm sure there's a number. Um, these days there's enough libertarians and enough libertarian content around that people, a lot of people will have heard the word Mm -hmm. and may have like assumptions of what I think I, what they think I mean when I say the word. Uh, And let me set the record straight for what I do mean and what I don't mean. So there is a political party in the United States called the libertarian party. That is not what I'm talking about. Right. That is just a political party. Mm Mm-hmm. People who are part of it may or may not um, conform to the actual ideas of libertarianism. So that we, within the movement, we we distinguish like capital L libertarian for the libertarian party and lowercase L libertarian for just like the libertarian the idea. ideas. Yeah. So I'm here to talk about the ideas and not the party or modern politics. Yeah, it's more kind of like a societal <clears throat> structure. Yeah, so like the ideas. And the reason why it's important to distinguish from the party is because up until recently, for most of the party's existence, it's been controlled by people who don't actually adhere to the yeah. the philosophy. Right. And they're basically just like Republicans that are a little bit stricter. <laughs> Rather than actual ideological libertarians, I gotcha. So they're they're so you can, yeah you can get a really bad rap for like what you think libertarianism is if well especially that's if all your you measuring know, stick yeah if all you know about libertarianism is that it's a political party and then you see the people or you listen to the people and you're like 
this doesn't make any sense. Like, are they? They're not any different than any of these other candidates or whatever. Right. So let's separate it from politics for the time being, for this podcast at least. Right. right? And so in the ideological space, um, because of that, like confusing distinction, you have a lot of libertarians who actually use different terms for describing their beliefs. So you'll hear some people describe themselves as voluntarist. Voluntarist meaning like they believe that all human interaction should be done on a voluntary manner. No force or aggression. No coercion. Um, and then you'll hear people just straight up call themselves anarchist. Um, you'll hear people use the term. I've heard, well... Also, if you go back in history and you're looking at like historical writers, um, it was actually the term before libertarian was liberal, but that term got co-opted in the United States kind of during the rise of progressivism. During that time, more and more progressives started using, the, well, maybe, I'm not sure which way the chicken or the egg on this, but I don't know if people who had previously called themselves liberal started adopting progressive ideas or if people who were progressive started calling themselves liberal. But mm. at one point, like what we now call classical liberal here in the United States is really more libertarian philosophy. So the OG classical liberals, John Locke and a lot of the founding fathers and gotcha. Okay. Um, in other parts of the world though, the term liberal still does kind of mean with that associated with libertarian ish ideals. But is there any countries that are like, like they practice, like they have a full on libertarian society? There are none in today's world. Um, there, I believe the, uh, Javier Malay, the guy who just got elected president of, uh, Argentina, he's a pretty hardcore libertarian. Interesting to keep an eye on. He just had a speech at the World Economic Forum and he told all those rich people out there that that they're trying to control the world and they're evil, basically. Really? It was a pretty epic speech. You should yeah, check I'd it love, out. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what they what their reaction was. I don't know. But they probably he, just kept He was introduced by it. Klaus Schwab. So <laughs> if, if you don't know anything about the World Economic Forum, it's just like all these like billionaires across the world and like government leaders they get together in davos and they have this big conference where they try and like plan out world affairs and whatnot um <laughs> anyway yeah he was he was he got an invite Schwab, huh? and he got introduced <laughs> by klaus schwab who's like the leader of the world economic forum and looks like looks and sounds like a bond villain <laughs> he's got this thick german yeah. accent and a bald head like Dr. Evil and he wears these like weird like not quite military uniforms he's like he's such a caricature of himself <laughs> like he looks like the bad guy fascinating anyway <laughs> <laughs> alright so what are the ideals then so yeah the ideals um, I'll start again more general and then we can go more specific but the general what you'll hear a lot of like uh libertarians say is like libertarians believe in the non-aggression principle and so the non-aggression principle is a principle which states that um 
So the principle states that uh, it's unjustified to be a person who uses aggressive force. So, which makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty uh, anyone easy to understand yeah. that. So, like, you throw the first punch, you're the aggressor. You're yeah. in the wrong. Yeah. Um, and that has to do, but. The, the problem with the, the non-aggression principle is it's not like philosophically precise. Like it's, it's just, it's kind of a shortcut. It's kind of like an easy way to explain yeah, and but get it the really, idea across, but it's not really specific or does it precise. Cover the intricacies of it. Yeah. Well, especially when you're talking about non-physical, like non-physical stuff. Right. But well, like, so it leaves open, like, how do you define aggression and aggression against what? Right. right. So, um, more specifically, um, what libertarians actually believe is a it's a it's a theory about property rights, okay. um, which is essentially what like it's it's its own way of distinguishing like who should be allocated what property in what situation. Um, so why do we need anything like this? Like who cares about property rights, property, you know, it's a weird thing to obsess over if you haven't like thought it through before. So why do we need any of this? And the reason why is because if we go back to the economics episode where we find ourselves as human beings born into a world where we need to make use of resources out in the world, right? in order to sustain our lives. Right. And none of us is an island. As humans, we don't um, do very well if, you know, if I drop you on a desert island or even in the middle of a forest full of resources, but by yourself, your chances of survival are really low. So we need to work together. Yeah. And by working together and creating a division of labor, we can become wealthy. We can increase our standard of living. But in order to do that, we need to be able to get along and we have to have some sort of way of resolving disputes. And disputes can arise in the world when two people want to make use of the same resource. They disagree. So resources are scarce. There's, they are conflictable materials, which means my use of it excludes your use of it. Only one person can be can have a use for it, can actively use it at the same time. And so if you want to avoid conflict, you have to come up with some sort of set of rules that says who gets to use that resource when the two people disagree. Yeah, so there's like a, there's like a tier. Like there's got to be some kind of way to um, figure out who needs it at this time, you know, based on their needs kind of a thing. Well... Is that the idea? Yeah, well... But not based on needs, because if you do it... So there's different ways you can do it, okay? Based on needs could be a way of doing it, and that's mm-hmm. sort of like the the communism logo is like to each based on their needs and from each based on their ability or whatever, right? Mm. Um, so communism would say if two people have a dispute over a resource, then the state will allocate who gets the right to use it. Okay, so what is the libertarian? The libertarian um, 
tradition goes back from John Locke, um, whose insight was that basically whoever is the first one to put it into use, there's only one fair way to solve the issue. So if mankind finds himself in the world, all of this resources around us and no one's used any of it, then whoever puts a thing to use and, and there's more details around that. Like you have to, you have to somehow embroider it or somehow make it apparent that make it is claim. yours. Yeah. You have to make an active claim for it. You have to leave some sort of way for people to know that it is owned and by who. Gotcha. That um, reminds me of when uh, the gold rush happened and they would have uh, the, the, what are they called? The, um, the claimers basically like they would actually go out and they find places that are likely to have gold or they're like and they would stake, would stake a, claim. a claim and they would right. just go around and just stake claims and put a basically put a note and says like put a little stake mm-hmm. and then with a note saying this is for this person right you know and that's an example of being able to do that um so there like i said there's limitations on that in that you actually have to put it into some sort of use or embroider it or something. You have to have some sort of way of like actually claiming it and intend to Making enforce it. Use, you can't useful. just say, I claim all the world. The mouth. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because no one has a way of telling that you did that. There's no way, there's no visible, there's yeah. no embroidering, there's no, you have no practical way of enforcing it. Like, so, so you actually you go put a wall around it or you, you put a fence around put a border, something. put a label. Yeah. So the claiming was kind of that way of doing it. It's like you would, you know, and a lot of times they would probably do that. Like they would semi make a, like a rope it off or something like mm-hmm. that, like rope off a section and claim it. A lot of times like the entrances are to like a cave where they know there could be mining. They would like stake a claim and like rope it. Yeah. So you, so, so that's putting a the libertarian answer is when there's a conflict over a resource is who had the first claim. Okay. But if the resource goes back in time, like say it's a piece of land and that land is passed down through generations, how do you know neither of the two people disputing over it will have quote unquote homesteaded it out of nature? Um, The Lockean way of describing is to like mix your labor with the thing. So you're somehow, it's becoming mixed with you, your essence somehow, and that's how you're quote-unquote homesteading that item or that property. Um, but the if, if neither of you is the original claimant, then, then what? So the second rule in libertarian property rights is that um, whoever has a better, whoever has a contract, whoever can basically prove back in line back to the original homesteader, or at least whoever can go further back. The farthest back that that they can prove some kind of claim. Yeah. So and also have the use of it, like making use of it and all mm-hmm, that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So rule one is original appropriation or homesteading. Rule two is contract and contract includes things like gifting. So if I have a piece of land, I can give it to you. That's still a contract, even though there's no money being transferred. 
Yeah, there's a lot of things my brain goes to originally because obviously this, you know, this and many other countries were not originally, you know. Right. We're not originally the under the, you know, homesteading of right. what the government claimed. Because, you know, the land was stolen from yeah. the natives. Yeah. Right. And so even under libertarian theory, like the theory is, is like as long as you can show title, you can show like a, a descendant that you descend from someone who had clear title, who was had something stolen, then there is no theoretical like statute of limits. Mm. So like land is up for being being taken back to being taken back if you can actually show a chain of custody kind of, of custody thing. like you should sh- you can show that it was your direct descendant who was in fact robbed from which unfortunately was not in practice at the time yeah and so because you know over the centuries and whatnot you know like these injustices become like legend and the people and the family trees and everything gets all murky. And so it becomes difficult to actually show that you in fact have that claim, which in fact, because you know, the, but in theory, there's nothing like in libertarian theory, there's nothing that says that you couldn't like, you still gotta have, if you can show like, say you're native American, you can show that your tribe, occupied the space of Manhattan Mm -hmm. and you can show the generations down and how you descend from it. In theory, you could claim some of that land, but you would have to be able to show that it was your direct descendants and that they specifically had title over a particular piece of land. Right. So that's really tough to do. Yeah. It was a, a show I was watching Yellowstone. I don't know if you heard of it. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, it's it's about the um, the Native American tribes in Yellowstone, you know, conflicting with you know the contemporary farmers and ranchers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was just this clip of um, on the reservation of um, she's a lawyer, but she's like talking about how she you know, wishes she could go back, you know, if she was able to go back, she would sell everything that the tribe had at the time and go to the, go to New York and buy and pay for the most, the best lawyers that they could find and, and basically do exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like claim, prove that this is their, you know, and basically have kept it from then, you know, obviously it's, uh, that's just, that's what they would, you know, looking back, but yeah. So, like basically, that, like, especially at the time, you know, like we're talking about the at the time when the government, like the U.S. hadn't even been formed yet when a lot of this started. Right. But obviously, right. once we started moving in, I mean, honestly, all all land like has a history of theft. Of course. Like, I mean, you look back in history, and there was there's there indigenous was governments all over. conquering people, kicking people off their land, stealing land. Kings you know, and, wars back and forth yeah. and like any land ultimately runs back into a dispute. So like in the case Absolutely. of land, you're almost never going to be able to show like original yeah. homesteading. But um, yeah, that's not exactly the requirement. It's between the two people who are disputing who, right. who can show the better title, who can show the better like original source. And that's also granting that 
we we form a libertarian society that <laughs> takes this into account, right? Yeah, because our right. society now is not going to take that into account. And then the third rule is um, tort, basically. So if I do something it? tort, tort, so t- tort is a word in the law that essentially means like someone injuring or hurting someone else's person or property. Oh, okay. So it's like an affront. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be criminal. It could be accidental, you know? Uh, but you know, if my brakes go out and it causes me to run over your lawn cause I can't stop in time and I knock down a fence on your property, I have wronged you even though I haven't like, there's no crim- no criminal intent there, but I still, did something there's still damage yeah and so in that case in order to make the person whole you know a a portion of your resources is now allocated to them allocated to them to rebuild to make it justified make amends yeah. yeah to make amends um so yeah essentially liberty that's from those three basic property rules you can basically build up libertarianism Build up the non-aggression principle. Yeah. And so the non-aggression principle just is just a shorthand explanation, but it still assumes that you are assuming those property rights exist. Right. Okay. And most westernized societies, most societies to the extent that they're, you know, have accumulated some sort of success and wealth have some sort of degree of property rights. But the problem is, is that, there's always this government looming overhead that claims the right to seize that property for at you at any time. Yeah. At any time, and eminent domain, or whether mm-hmm. it be that you don't pay your property taxes, domain, taxation itself. Right. Um, so yeah, taxation is the is the taking of resources in order to pay for the land. Right. So those are the the three rules for distinguishing who has title to something, but what do, can you have a title over? Right. So your first, it all starts with like your own personal body. Right. And it's assumed in libertarianism that everyone has homesteaded or has a property right in their own body. Mm-hmm. It's pretty given. Yeah. yeah Inalienable right. That's slavery. Yeah. Um, and then anything that you homestead and then anything that you contract for, those all become extensions of your your homestead within of you basically right? yeah of your ownership and then those things are all then protected by the libertarian law system which would be that no aggression essentially so if anyone steps on your rights then you have the right to be made whole and what would be the um so it would be like arbitration to to determine what is what's going to be made whole. Like how would you be, or is it just you say I need you to give me this? Like th- between the two people, if you can agree between the two people, obviously, then you yeah. Say, hey, so you're, in order you're to essentially make asking whole, like what would a libertarian society look like? Well, it basically, if like how to just you know to actually other than just the two people saying hey this is what i need to be make whole and they, and as long as they agree to pay to to give you that to make you whole mm-hmm. but as soon as they start to disagree on what it is as soon as they start to disagree then they have be to some have arbiter. some sort of yeah arbitration which happens all party. the time right yeah. yeah so the two people 
would elect someone to represent themselves. That they both agree on. Or they could or, represent themselves, but then... And it's basically the same thing. And then... So let, let's say you hire, quote-unquote, an attorney or whatever. You, so you can you can bring someone in to represent you who's more versed in like legal matters. And then those two attorneys would sit down and talk. And they would... Uh, well, they could just agree... On their but own they'll probably for, on behalf, right? elect a third um, arbitrator, like a judge, and or even a judge system. So you could still have similar court systems to what we have today. Yeah, they but just it would wouldn't be necessarily privately be, funded, be state run, right? And we haven't built up to anything as to why this necessarily disagrees with the state, other than a couple things like taxation right. and stuff, right? right. But. Um, we'll build to that, but I'm we're sure, actually I'm getting sure pretty close that. to a break here. So when we come back, I actually have a little bit of a snippet of something that I want to read, cool. um, which will set the tone for where we're going to go from there. Okay. And then uh, we can think out more and more of like, what is the implications of this type of reasoning? Yeah. I want to know what a society might look like. Yeah, that's the, where I want to go. That's where a lot of my questions kind of point. Yeah, okay. To try, and, and mostly just kind of like you know whether it's already spelled out and uh, um, you can queue it up if you want. I'm just talking, but yeah, yeah just, whether it's spelled out in libertarian ideals or not, it could be fun to just kind of spitball with you and mm -hmm. you know figure out what a what it might look like for actual libertarian society. Right. Fun thought exercise. Cool. We'll be back. All right. Instead of uh, the boys needing attention this time, uh, I got a call for work while we're in break. Yeah. <laughs> First time for you, though. Yeah. First time yeah. you needed to step away from me. I'm on call for work like every other week, and so yeah. far this is the first time first I've time. gotten a work call while we're recording. First time. So Maybe the last time. Luckily, it happened during the break. 
we'll see wherever every eight episodes you'll get a call yeah call it that and then there's gonna be that one episode where it's like an emergency call right where all we're in the middle <laughs> of recording and i'm like sorry i have to leave and we'll have to like release like Punch a point. half-length episode or record it in two parts or something right maybe do a two-parter for that or something yeah so uh heads up something like that might is possible to happen yeah we both do <laughs> work full-time my current job does not require me to leave anywhere at this time but <laughs> yeah i uh i service point of sale systems for restaurants so yeah. like when they take your order and they put it in the computer like my company runs and installs and services those computers so yeah after hours especially like restaurants and yeah they're open people trying to close our office isn't so if they start running into major issues during their dinner hour late hours like they it's an emergency for they them, gotta yeah. be able to call us and that's me that answers the phone every other week yep anyway <laughs> so yeah we are back and we are drinking so we are got we've got a variety pack this week we got yeah. stone delicious variety pack so we're on the citrus IPA. We had the double IPA before, right? Yeah, so this is the delicious series. So it's delicious yeah. IPA, delicious citrus IPA, and delicious double IPA. And that what was the double? The double percentage? is 9.4%, Dad. God damn. And then uh, this citrus is 7.7%. Dad, we're still going to hold you to the... Maybe it'll, be, it'll have to be like during the... Maybe a... Uh, like a daytime or a weekend episode if we ever do like a weekend recording or something. We'll mm. See if dad will bring us some beers and come yeah. over and chat with us for a bit. Yeah, that'd be While recording. Mm. Be fun. All right, so uh, what I want to do now is read a little yeah. piece here. So this is from, it's hard to call it a book because it's only 20 pages. Maybe a manifesto, maybe a pamphlet i don't know what you would call something this short an essay an essay yeah there you go uh so this is by murray rothbard who is kind of the libertarian godfather um he was a student of mises back on the economics episode we talked about him a little bit and we actually read from some of Mm -hmm. rothbard's work um so Rothbard was not just an economist, he was also a historian, and he was also a, a libertarian uh, theorist. So he mm. would write about like legal theory. He actually came up with this idea called the uh, title transfer theory of contracts. Mm. So if you ever heard people talk about like what contracts are, um, you've probably heard them described as like a binding agreement. You heard that language mm-hmm. before? Yeah, I've heard that's that's a very common way to describe them. Right, and a binding contract. Um, what Rothbard does is he kind of breaks apart that uh, understanding, and he proposes a different theory for what a contract is, which is just a title transfer. Okay. So, so like, it's not less, it's less binding. So if we if we make a contract for me to uh, play music. For Wyatt's birthday, okay, and what that is is a a title transfer agreement. So you are agreeing to transfer a hundred dollars to me on the contingency that I perform the agreed upon action, which is playing music. Right. So if I come and I play that music, 
And you've fulfilled your I fulfilled part of the contract. my obligation. And, and then I at must. that moment, whether or not you write me the check right then, but at that moment, $100 of yours becomes mine. Right, in theory. It's just in your possession still. Right, right. And so what makes that important is if you then don't pay me, I can I have a claim of theft because that hundred dollars of yours turned over to me at the moment I fulfilled the contract. So me still having it is considered theft at that point. Right. Right. Gotcha. Versus versus me just not then, paying you because I didn't like the music you didn't that you played. Right. Right. <laughs> or if I uh, if I uh, if I flake I flake on the birthday party and I don't show up. Well, then I didn't perform the action that triggered the transfer of money. Mm-hmm. So unless we have a clause in our contract saying that if I don't perform, then I owe you a certain amount right. of damages. Right, I was going to say, would there be any damages? Then the default considered? would be not, That's basically, it's, it's, it's all based upon the, agreed, the agreements you make. Right. Yeah. Okay, but... Anyway, so that um, was and that was Murray Rothbard that that's authored Murray that. Murray Rothbard, yeah. Title gotcha. transfer theory of contracts. Okay. Anyway, so this is uh, from an essay called Anatomy of the State, and it's pretty short. I'm not sure if we're going to read it all, but we're going to read like a little chunk of it at least, and uh, spark some conversation. Yeah. So, what the state is not. The state is almost universally considered an institution of social social service. Some theorists venerate the state as the apotheosis of society. Others regard it as an amiable, though often inefficient, organ, organization for achieving social ends. But almost all regard it as a necessary means for achieving the goals of mankind. A means to be ranged against the private sector and often winning in this competition of resources. Excuse me. With the rise of democracy, the identification of the state with society has been redoubled. Until it is common to hear sentiments expressed which violate virtually every tenet of reason and common sense, such as, we are the government. The useful collective term we has enabled an ideological camouflage to be thrown over the reality of political life. If, quote, we are the government, then anything a government does to an individual is not only just and untyrannical, but also voluntary on the part of the individual concerned. If the government has incurred a huge public debt, which must be paid by taxing one group for the benefit of another, the reality of burden is obscured by saying that we owe it to ourselves. If the government conscripts a man into the military or throws him into jail for dissident opinion, he then he is doing it to himself. And therefore, nothing untoward has occurred. Under this reasoning, any Jews murdered under the Nazi government were not murdered. Instead, they must have committed suicide since they were the government, which was democratically chosen, and therefore, anything the government did to them was voluntary on their part. One would not think it necessary to belabor this point, and yet the overwhelming bulk of the people hold this fallacy to a greater or lesser degree. That's actually fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, what it said in the beginning says, when it started with the we are the government thing, 
So it's basically this idea that collectively as the United States, for example, we, we believe that the government like, is I, made of the people, is made the of the people, people by the people, for the people, for the people right? You so, hear that, right? Yeah, you hear that. So that means that ideologically, or I guess, if it is made of you by you for you, then anything it does to you is in, in a way you doing it to yourself, and that's kind of the point he's making. But like, tell that to citizens of democratically elected governments all over the world who do tyrannical things. Yeah. Just because it's the democracy, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily that, mean that you are the government. That you're the one doing the thing, specifically in the case of something that happens to you. Like, you're not doing something to yourself when right. it when the government has instituted some rule that is going to force you to do, or to, I guess, yeah, to, to do something. Like being conscripted to the military. Right. Or- and part of his point is that this is more of a modern confusion because back yeah. in the day under monarchies, it was, it wasn't, it was a separation. It wasn't so easy to make that confusion. Right. right. Cause like, the, no, a, that's not, top I'm not the government, the king and his people that he determines they're yeah. the government. So if you have an issue, like there's no way of construing it so that you're doing it to yourself. Right. But right. under democracy, it makes it, it can make it more confusing for people. It's a word play. So it's a way of like a word play in order to confuse the people. Yeah. So sloppy use of language and sloppy use of ideas just because you have some sort of participatory outlet within your government doesn't make that government you and doesn't make the things that the government does to you just you doing it to yourself. Right. Okay. Continue. We must therefore emphasize that we are not the government. The government is not us. The government does not in any accurate sense represent the majority of the people. But even if it did, even if 70% of the people decided to rem- to murder the remaining 30%, this would still be murder and would not be voluntary suicide on the part of the slaughtered minority. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's just so obvious, but that's okay. that's like a like a reoccurring thing in like libertarian writing yeah. is like libertarian theorists the- have a way of like using language and and describing situations in such a way that it makes it seem like such common sense. Like how could anyone think otherwise? Right. That's good though because it, it and you got to remember like the founding of our country was founded on a lot of these ideas too, right? Right. This was us rebelling against monarchy and putting in place an experiment of self-government, right? Yeah. But just because, you know, it was the most quote-unquote free society at the time does not necessarily mean that that's... It was without... It still is. Well, even even then, though, it still was... Or that it even was then. Right, right. because even then, there was still... There was still, there were still powerful people with lots of money who had things to gain from distorting things in their right. favor. Right, and it started then because you can't assume that things just started in the 20th century. Well, it wasn't every single person in the United States who signed exactly. on. Exactly, it was exactly. a bunch of representatives who signed exactly. off on behalf of people. So exactly, yeah, yeah. 
no organicist metaphor, no irrelevant bromide that we are all part of one another must be permitted to obscure this basic fact. If then the state is not us, if it is not quote unquote the human family getting together to decide mutual problems, if it is not a lodge meeting or a country club, what is it? Briefly, the state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered, but by coercion. While yeah. other individuals or institutions obtain their income by production of goods and services and by the peaceful voluntary sale of these goods and services to others, the state obtains its revenue by the use of compulsion. That is by the use and the threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet having used force and violence to obtain its revenue. The state generally goes on to regulate and dictate the other actions of its individual subjects. One would think that simple observation of all states through history over the globe would be proof enough of this assertion. But the miasma of myth has lain so long over the state actively that elaboration is necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's, mm. that's the classic libertarian definition for the state. Yeah. The state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. Yeah, and it's it's colored different ways too, right? Like obviously people know that if you if you refuse to pay your taxes, right. the government has the right, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes. People can't see me, but I'm using air quotes, the right to put you in jail. Right. So, a, so like, if you don't pay, you'll probably start off with like a letter from the IRS. Sure. And it might be like vaguely threatening and you'd be like, oh crap. And but usually if you continue people, to not pay, yeah. someone will show up at your door yep. and throw you, audit you, try to arrest you, audit you, ultimately throw you in prison if you still refuse to pay. And then if you refuse to go with them to jail... Then they, they use force. They ultimately can use, you know, violence and force to either kill you or force you into jail. Yeah. And they claim that right over you. And at birth, if there's anyone here, like, or if there's any, like, any person who, you know, doesn't pay their taxes and ends up raided or whatever and hurt, like, no one is going to be surprised by that fact. Like, we all understand that that's the... It's a reality. That's the deal. Like, you better pay your taxes. Yeah. This is a... <laughs> it's a perfect timing for this episode, too. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's just now getting their W-2s. <laughs> Alright, so what the state is. Man is born naked into the world and needing to use his mind to learn how to take resources given him by nature and to transform them, for example, by investment in capital, into shapes and forms and places where the resources can be used to, for the satisfaction of his wants and the advancement of his standard of living. 
The only way by which man can do this is by the use of his mind and energy to transform resources, quote unquote, production, and to exchange these products for products created by others. Man has found that through the process of voluntary mutual exchange, the productivity and hence the living standards of all participants in exchange may increase enormously. The only natural course for man to survive and to attain wealth, therefore, is by using his mind and energy to engage in the production and exchange process. He does this first by finding natural resources, then by transforming them, by mixing his labor with them, as Locke puts it, to make them his individual property, then by exchanging this property for the similarly attained property of others. The social path dictated by the requirements of man's nature, therefore, is the path of property rights. That's what we were talking about earlier, yeah, gotcha. That actually helped me solidify the ideas we were talking about with Locke and how he talked about mixing his labor, Mm -hmm. or how you were talking about how, like, mixing, so the work you put in to manufacture or produce whatever said good is, that's what the mixing of labor is, that Mm -hmm. therefore puts you in connection with that and it is yours because you've mixed your blood, sweat, and tears with the thing. Right. In a, you know, quote unquote. So, yeah, the social path is property rights, free market, and gift or exchange of such rights. Through this path, men have learned how to avoid the quote unquote jungle methods of fighting over scarce resources so that A, can only acquire them at the expense of B and instead to multiply those resources enormously in peaceful and harmonious production and exchange, right? So we have two options, right? We as humans, we can choose to go and like rob everyone of their resources, right? But that's going to turn everyone against us. Right. And so eventually- we go in and turn around like, and trade them. That's the whole right. like live by the sword, die, die by yeah. the sword type mentality, yeah. right? Or you're like, okay, I'm going to- get whatever I can, produce whatever value, and trade. Mm -hmm. And then not only are you benefited by trading, but so is the other person. And that is, like, there's those two fundamentally different approaches to life. One peaceful, one harmonious, or one's peaceful and harmonious, and one is violent violent and aggressive. aggressive, And one makes everyone wealthier, and one only makes one the strong wealthy at the expense of the weak. Right. And then, yeah, like you're saying, like you can go around and do that, right? But then what are you going to do with it? You don't know how to produce it. You don't know how anything. So <laughs> yeah. then what are you going to do? It's only a temporary It's a temporary fix, uh, fix yeah. but at the same time, you're going to want to go around and, and, and sell it. But people are going to be like, well, you're those bandits that raided us over there. I'm not going to trust you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. The great German sociologist Franz Oppenheimer pointed out that there are two mutually exclusive ways of acquiring wealth. One, the above way of production and exchange, he called the economic means. The other way is simpler in that it does not require productivity. It is the way of seizure of another's goods or services by the use of force and violence. This is the method of one-sided confiscation, of theft of the property of others. This is the method which Oppenheimer termed the political means (laughs) to wealth. It should be clear that the peaceful use of reason and energy in production is the quote-unquote natural path for man. This means that for his survival and prosperity, 
oh, the means for his survival and prosperity on Earth. It should be equally clear that the coercive, exploitative means is contrary to natural law. It is parasitic. For instead of adding to production, it subtracts from it. The political means siphons production off to a, parasi- to a parasitic and destructive individual or group. And this siphoning not only subtracts from the number of the number producing, but also lowers the producer's incentive to produce beyond his own subsistence. In the long run, the robber destroyed his own subsistence by dwindling or eliminating the source of his own supply. But not only that, even in the short run, the producer is acting contrary to his own true nature as a man. Yeah, so if you put that in like a like a governmental term, like if you if you think of like a government as the the political means, right? Which you know it's pretty obvious the way mm-hmm. that they labeled it. Um, it's obvious that like a lot of the a lot of times, like you know, you hear like these small businesses and they can't survive because they're still being taxed. So like if there's a recession, like say like the pandemic, the recent right. pandemic, and all and the restrictions are coming down from the government as well. Like there's all these government restrictions saying you can't do this anymore. You have to close your business. You have to do this. Um, and then they're, they're not gaining any revenue, but they're at the same time, they're still having to pay taxes and they're still having to pay Mm -hmm. like the, and that's the robber. That's them like taking right without producing anything or adding to the production. Right. Right. So it's killing all of these small businesses that are in local towns that are trying to like build up the economy locally. Right. So by by <laughs> seizing or like let's make it smaller, like yeah. you know, like three people land on a desert island and are all trying to survive together, you know. You decide to go fishing, I decide to to gather berries in the woods and John decides to like go hunting but halfway through he's like ah this is really hard I know what I'll do I'll go back to camp and I'll steal the fish from Drew and the berries from Neen right so he does that and it gets violent to do that Mm -hmm. and not only is there not any meat for all of us we all could have been better off if he had just got meat and we traded it and then all three of us would have benefited but on top of that now we're injured now you have less, less i have less, less product- he has less all our productions and went down. we're less incentivized to keep producing because we know he's just going to come steal it again right yeah that's a great that's a great example so we're now in a position to answer more fully the question what is the state the state in the words of oppenheimer <laughs> is the organization of political means it is the systemization of the predatory process over a given territory for crime at best is sporadic and uncertain. The parasitism is ephemeral and the coercive parasitic lifeline may be cut off at any time by the resistance of the victims. The state provides legal orderly systemic channel for the predation of private property. It renders certain secure and relatively peaceful quote unquote, the lifeline of parasitic caste in society. Since production must always precede predation, the free market is anterior to the state. The state has never been created by a social contract. It has always been born in conquest and exploitation. The classic paradigm was a conquering tribe 
pausing in its time-honored method of looting and murdering a conquered tribe to realize the time span of plunder would be longer and more secure and the situation more pleasant if the conquered tribe were allowed to live and produce with the conquerors settling among them as rulers exacting a steady annual tribute. One method of the birth of the state may be illustrated as follows in the hills of Southern Ruritania a bandit group manages to obtain physical control over the territory, and finally, the bandit chieftain proclaims himself king of the sovereign and independent government of South Ruritania. And if he and his men have the force to maintain this rule for a while, lo and behold, a new state has joined the family of nations, and the former bandit leaders have been transformed into the lawful nobility of the realm. <laughs> So this is like providing essentially a theory for like what, how could the first state have formed, right? right? So if originally back in the day you have these like different tribes, some of these tribes are peaceful with each other and they trade. Some of them are more violent and they go on like raids right? and they raid their neighboring tribes. Yeah, this makes me think of Greece. All right, so back in the day, they, they'll go raid. They'll, like, kill everyone in the city, take all their resources, and take the loot back home. And they'll live all fat and happy off of that until they run out of the resources. Yep, and then they go But the thing is, is they just killed the goose that laid the golden eggs so by where, raiding where and murdering and pillaging, stuff? right? So, oh, someone has the idea. All right, Next hear time. me out. Yeah. Instead of killing everyone, let's just go in. Show them shit. who's boss. Take put the shit. fear of God in them. Yeah. And set our, like, we'll live amongst them. Mm-hmm. We'll keep our Settle. weapons aimed at them and we'll require them to keep paying us over time. This way they can keep producing and this way we can keep Making getting sure. resources, but without having to constantly go risk our lives in these raids. And not only that, but risk losing the production. Right. Because once they lose all the stuff that they just got, Who's going to produce that for them now? Right. Because they're not going to do it. So it's a more efficient way of like being a thief or a parasite. Instead of going and conquering and killing, you go and you conquer, you don't kill, you tax instead. You, and you set yourself you up as fear, the nobility, the rulers. And you put fear into them so that they, they, they comply. Right. Which I think is a pretty like fascinating like it's a fascinating way to theory think about for that. what is the state and how did it come how to be? How did it come to be in the in the first place? Yeah, and how did it and how did it continue? Right, right, because you got to see other p- parts of the world where like hmm, that's an interesting way of doing that. You know, I'm just going to see what that what the, what what I can do with that in my neck of the woods. You know, yeah, like you imagine like. Like once they conquer that one city, they're like they're continuing to like build up resources by leeching off of the population, and eventually they save up enough to like go on a new raid. And right. they go on the new raid, and they try and conquer that next place. And now they got two places paying them, right. and they're constantly trying to grow. And then ultimately, they've conquered enough territory to where the next place they try and conquer is already conquered by someone else. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. where, like, warfare st- sets right, in. Right, right. Because there's, there's, like, fundamentally something different from, like, going somewhere and raiding it for resources, pillaging it, versus, like, going there 
and fighting against the other people who control that area, right? Yeah. And in setting up that, right, it's like taking over the territories, right? You take over that first group. And then you realize that first group doesn't produce a lot of these resources that you're obtaining. So you realize, oh, they're trading with this other group mm. over here. So if we just go so conquer them. So if we just them, go conquer them, we don't have to worry about this middleman of them like doing all the trading. We can just get it from the direct directly. And then you realize that group is get, obtaining some of their resources from another group. Right. And then you continue you're like following the thread back to the origin to the to the source, right? So maybe the things that are the most valuable or the things that you realize you just can't get on a regular basis without the fact that they're going to trade. Like, like you were saying, like we were talking about before, like um, they're going to be less likely to do those trades knowing that they're just going to get it taken. Right. Mm -hmm. So then they realize that, Oh, it's not being produced here. It's being traded for, for with the resources that we're taking. So if we're taking all these resources, they're no longer allowed to trade. They're no longer able to trade. So now we just got to go take over that state instead of having to worry about them trading and doing all that. But like even if they don't them. take over that state, like they like they could still require their subjects to go do the trade and then like demand a tax on the profits of that, right? But you're still losing out, right? Right. Like they could still make a little bit more by going to the source. Yeah. 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 So that's probably what may have led them to go state to state to state if you were to think about it like that. Right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. Like that's probably pretty accurate as far as like war because you can't consider something war if you're the most powerful and you're going and taking over people who are peaceful. That's not war. That's that's yeah. Well, there's something fundamentally different between going against another government armed and organized powerful. with military yeah. might versus yeah. like a just a peaceful population that isn't organized with a military and right. just plundering their resources. Right. right. Exactly. So, so that might be the origins of war then. Yeah. Is for, this for me, like I would propose that as a sort of definition of war, which is like states fighting each other. Yeah. Or would it be nations under the state like states under the nation fighting? Well, a state so states are under here in the, America we get confused with the term state because yeah. we have states no, I know. and nations. I'm thinking of like Greece right? is what I'm thinking of. Right. But it's like, like city states, nation states, they're all states. Like a state is right. a thing that claims the monopoly of violence on that area, right? Okay. They're the ones that get to use. Oh, so you're the violent saying force. even the state is okay, okay. So even so, if it, if it's just a group in an area, they're not necessarily a state until they have the monopoly on violence and force. I got you based on the, the right. definition set out here. Got right. It. Okay. Okay. So how the state preserves itself. Once a state has been established, the problem of the ruling group or caste is how to maintain their rule. While force is their modus operandi, their basic and long-term problem is ideological. For in order to continue in office, any government, not simply a democratic government, must have the support of the majority of its subjects. The support, it must be noted, need not be active enthusiasm. It may well be passive resignation as if to an, an inevitable law of nature. But support in the sense of acceptance of some sort, it must be. Else, the minority of state rulers would eventually be outweighed by the active resistance of the majority of the public. Right. Since... Yeah. 
Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah. So it's basically whether it's um, um, resentful, you know, acknowledgement of it or if it's, you know, enthusiastic. Yeah. yeah like that maxim, death and taxes. Nothing in life is inevitable except for death and taxes. Like right. that's, that's that like that's a, that's exasperated, a, yeah, like giving exactly. up. Like, it, I'm sorry. It's just, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And if there's nothing you can do about it, if someone is going to tax you, if someone is going to gonna rule you. All right. We agree. At least there's a constitution. <sighs> You know, like, right. at least it's a government of the people. Yeah, except the Constitution is subject to change. But, uh, so you don't have to be an enthusiastic supporter. You just right. need to be willing to not, like, fight, fight against it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry, continue. So, since the predation must be supported out of the surplus of production, because it's... Right, so like I think that's important, right, 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 because you got to sustain the population, and then there's excess, and yeah. that's what you can be taken. You need the population to be able to survive on its own, yeah, and it needs to be able to survive on its own in enough wealth that you can pull off of it while w- continuing it, while they are able to continue. Right. right, you can't take too much that, especially, you know. I guess contemporary, less, not really contemporarily, but um, like you can't, once you start taking too much, that's when you get revolts. That's when you get, you know, rebel groups that start right. to come well, up. Well, that's when like, the people right, dude, who are we like, we just can't survive anymore. We got to do something. Right. That's when those people, like, that's what he's saying here, right? Yeah. Like, that's when those people who are just kind of like resigned that the state they is inevitable, they start to be like, you know what? I don't care. I can't freaking feed my kids. I'm going to do something about it. If we can't survive, we got to do something. Yeah. You need people to be at least passively resigned, if not supporting of it. And so if you overbear on them with the taxes and the, the predation, then inevitably you, you cause more people to stop being passive about it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, since the predation must be supported out of the surplus of production, it is necessarily true that the class constituting the state, the full-time bureaucracy and nobility must be a rather small minority in the land. Although it may, of course, purchase allies among important groups of the population. Therefore, the chief task of the rulers is always to secure the active or resigned acceptance of the majority of the citizens. Man. It's pretty uh, well spelled out. Yeah. When was this published? If if can you? Um, let me see. I don't want to derail us too much, but I'm curious. 1974. Wow. Okay. So not as long ago as I thought it would be. No. Uh, of course, one method of securing support is through the creation of a vested economic interests. Therefore, the king alone cannot rule. He must have a sizable group of followers who enjoy the prerequisites of rule. For example, the members of the state apparatus, such as the full-time bureaucracy or the established nobility. But this still secures only a minority of eager supporters. And even the essential purchasing of support by subsidies and other grants of privilege still does not obtain the consent of the majority. For this essential acceptance, the majority must be persuaded by ideology that the government is good. 
Yeah, so they wise and at least inevitable, and certainly better than other conceivable alternatives. Right. So that that kind of brings in propaganda. Right. The use of propaganda mm-hmm. to to create a story of why we are better than what is the the, right. the potential alternative. So why is it good? Why is it inevitable? Wise. Why is it at least better than what it would be otherwise? Yeah. Okay. Promoting this ideology among the people is the vital social task of the intellectuals. For the masses of men do not create their own ideas or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals. Intellectuals are therefore the opinion molders in society. And since it is precisely a molding of opinion that the state most desperately needs, the basis for an age-old alliance between the state and the intellectuals becomes clear. Wow, does this not bring us back to episode one? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. Does it not yeah, well, bring this, us back to the idea that why why government why government sees sees it so um, um, useful to um, sway what it is that intellectuals otherwise you know colleges and professors and the 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 inter, um, education system is. Um, disseminating down to the population right as a whole right so and why there are all of these um um, that's why universities they're all public funded and that's why all the funding apparatus for science comes through the government and it makes people identify the government with science with progress with the very like study and and like understanding of nature that makes us so productive with technology and so you're saying and ideas, new ideas, right? And, and it makes the this like this avenue of progress mixed with this avenue of predation to the point where because yeah. people see how these intellectual pursuits cause our lives to get better, change, but they don't see how the intellectuals are in bed with the government, and they see the, like the, everyone's got some sort of uh, complaints about government, right? If right. you're on the light on the left, you got one set of complaints. If you're on the right, you yep. got a different set of complaints. If you're an outlier, you got your own sets of complaints. But right. everyone's got some something they're not happy with with yep. the the way things are set up right the now. The way we're governed, yeah. But yeah, a lot of people don't necessarily see that sort of like necessary alliance. When they and a lot of times they don't see the way those um, complaints overlap. Mm-hmm. They don't see how similar our complaints are yeah. because of the differences. A lot of times the complaints of the left and the complaints of the right are complaints aimed at the same uh, source, yeah. right? But like they're opposite sides of the same coin. And because they're coming at it from a different approach, they think they're against each other when if they stop and really think about it clearly, they can realize... They both, both party. of their complaints are better aimed at this third party yep. that is motivated to keep them at odds with each other. Right. Continue before we get too political. <laughs> it is evident that the state needs the intellectuals. It is not so evident why the intellectuals need the state. 
Put simply, we may state that the intellectuals depend on the values and choices of the masses of his fellow men. And it is precisely characteristic of the masses that are generally uninterested in intellectual matters. Uh, the state, on the other hand, is willing to offer the intellectuals a secure and permanent birth in the state apparatus and thus secure income and the panoply of prestige for the intellectuals will be handsomely rewarded for the important function they perform for the state rulers of which group they now become a part. So what he's saying here is like, you know, people, they're busy. They got yeah. lives, they got families, like they're, they, so much they're, they got their nose to the grindstone. They're, they're doing with, with, with their life, what they want to do. Right. And that isn't always like pursuing intellectual pursuits. Right. So you don't have time to like go into all these deep and vague intellectual matters. And so maybe you don't see how obvious it is that these people may need funding. Right. And so the intellectuals, if they try and survive on the open market, they may find it like tenuous to like find a free market yeah. survival Source. mechanism. Yeah. But a source of funding for them, yeah. The state creates these universities, it creates these positions, it creates this prestige and this state funding apparatus that gives them security in their intellectual pursuits, whereas the people where the funding ultimately comes from yeah. wouldn't necessarily put that money there without right. the state to do it. Man. And I it, you know what's you know what's um gives me hope is internet and these new these new outlets and YouTube and how we're seeing so many more intellectuals go on YouTube and do all these podcasts and they're seeing the benefit of how much how many people they can yes. get behind them yes. in their ideas and we have a new class of intellectuals rising because of the internet who are creating a direct relationship between the consumers of their of their thoughts and 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 they're getting pushback just the same right, right. they're getting pushback and there's and there are a lot of these projects where they're they're trying to but pushback is good pushback no, means is. engagement and exactly. means people are listening and people are thinking and exactly. wrestling with their ideas exactly it means podcast listens which means advertising revenue they're like Jordan Peterson, he yeah. he's gotten his license stripped from him. Yep. He's been kicked out of uh, yep. institutions. Couldn't be more popular though. Right. He, Couldn't be more popular. And his money is not a question anymore no. because he has created a direct relationship exactly. with the consumer class. And not only him. Dude. With his intellectual pursuits. And that is a much more honest way to be an intellectual. Right. You're talking about like people like... Michael Malice, people like um, like a lot of these people who are going around and doing speaking tours, and they go around to these even colleges still like they're going and mm -hmm. talking to these people like in institutions that are set up and funded by government, but they see the value. But you see it in science too. You see it with Absolutely. the like uh, there's all these scientists that have the podcast. The uh, uh, Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll's and, one of them. Uh, Brian. Uh, Brian Cox, Brian Cox, and, and and the new ones like Brian Murescu, who's now Lex Friedman, Lex Friedman, yep, and even like Eric and Brett Weinstein, and when that's why Weinstein. Joe Rogan has been so influential in this day and he, age. Yeah, he brings he all these brings these intellectuals, these intellectuals in to, on to talk and think in and front long, of people, long form content because right. into people who are looking for an intellectual conversation 
don't want a 30 second clip. They right. want a two hour po- yeah. long podcast where they can actually see what this person is about. Right. What they're, what maybe their they're not ready is. to like read a book. Maybe they're not ready exactly. to take a college course, but they right. can listen to a two to yeah. four hour Joe Rogan podcast yep. with some astrophysicists talking about stars and all this stuff that's above their head. And that may engender a interest in that topic that they can like build on later. Right. You know, like the internet, you're right. That is a very hopeful thing. The internet is sort of undercutting this, this Mm -hmm. alliance between the state and the intellectuals. It's offering intellectuals a different path. Uh, Right. Exactly. I just wanted to point that out because it's that sparked, like it made that make so much sense to me. Yeah. So, Heck yeah. Anyway, we're we're over. We're going to take a little break over. here. Got to <laughs> tinkle. And uh, we'll be back in just a few. All right, thanks for hanging on. We'll be back. check we Mm. are here Mm. kids are asleep no more work calls actually i forgot to get a beer oh let me go do that real quick if you want to grab that yeah get started i'll start or at least remind us where we were you can hear me reading here yeah while you run to the fridge all right 
the alliance between the state and the intellectuals was symbolized in the eager desire of professional of professors at the University of Berlin in the 19th century to form the quote intellectual bodyguard of the House of Ho- Holzenhorn. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. In the present day, let us note the revealing comment of an eminent Marxist scholar concerning Professor Whitfogel's critical study of ancient Oriental despotism. The civilization which Professor Whitfogel is so bitterly attacking was one which could make poets and scholars into officials. Um, of innumerable examples, we may cite the recent development of the science of strategy in the service of government's main violence wielding arm, the military, the venerable institution furthermore is the official or court historian dedicated to purveying the rulers views of their own and their predecessors actions. So is that basically talking about how the military arm pulls in a lot of the intellectuals in order to yeah. to make sh- make their points more valid by making like military matters a science to be studied uh, you can recruit intellectuals into that pursuit or like court historians so you're saying like the official funding of history you know the whole saying like the the history is written by the winners right yep. like yep. it's the winners funding a historian to tell the history tell the story right that's yeah. another example of the yeah in ancient times it was a literal scribe sitting there on the battle lines watching it right and whichever scribe whichever side won the scribe survived and their their story was told right <laughs> or in this example he gave this professor is bitterly attacking a, a society which could make poets and scholars into officials, which yeah. is an example exactly. right, of yeah. those intellectuals becoming yeah. part of the government. Right. Uh, many and varied have been the arguments of which the state and its intellectuals have induced their subjects to support their rule. Basically, the strands of argument may be summed up as follows. A, the state rulers are great and wise men. They rule by divine right. They are the aristocracy of men. They are the scientific experts, much greater and wiser than the good, but rather simple subjects. And B, rule by the the extent government is, uh, rule by the extent government is inevitable, absolutely necessary, and far better than the indescribable evils that would ensue upon its downfall. The union of church and state was one of the oldest and most successful of these ideological devices. The ruler was either anointed by God or in the case uh, of the absolute absolute rule of many other oriental despotisms was himself God. Hence, any resistance to his rule would be blasphemy. The state's priestcraft performed the basic intellectual function of obtaining popular support and even worship for the rulers. Yeah, man. That yeah, so the integration of church and state, obviously because church had a lot of the the scientific minded people at the time. Right. In the beginnings, right? If we're talking about the beginnings of church and state coming together to form this alliance. Yeah, the Holy Roman Empire yeah. had lasted 
a very long time. Right. And even though we have this the, quote the unquote, official Roman Empire, you know, only lasted a certain amount of time, but uh-huh. even after the Roman Empire collapsed, then yeah. the Holy Roman Empire started where the Pope would essentially ally with whatever kings and whatever territories and tell basically get all his bishops and priests in that area to tell the population oh this is, this the, is the, divine. the divinely appointed yeah. ruler of this land and if you go against this ruler if you rebel you're rebelling against god you're rebelling against jesus you're going to go to hell mm-hmm. yeah and even and even this um, or in eastern countries like it was the the belief that the king was God. Was God himself, yeah. But I, I was going to say, like, even in the contemporary, like, this quote-unquote separation of church and state, do we, are well, we, are we really, are we, do we really believe You that? can see it as, like, an attempt by the founding fathers to defend against that long, old alliance. Sure, sure but did it but, hold? But, no, it question. didn't, because still to this day... Uh, you see big political influences of like large parishes and large Christian mega churches, making like donations and like right and, lobbying, and lobbying, and, yeah, yeah, and you get like politicians trying to get the support of people right. who have and a lot you, of influence with their followers. And what does the quote unquote president or ruler um, usually swear in on using? What do you mean? Oh, they, using the Bible? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Right, right. You know, it's a lot of this, like, and nowadays it's a lot of this hidden stuff, right? It's a lot of this, like, behind closed doors, or, or at least it's like, it's um, um, used as more of a, um, yeah, I'm, it's, it's I'm more obfuscated. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's less obvious. But for people who like, like as the world is becoming less like religious and more like scientific, quote unquote, like that's where like the university system yeah. and all the professors oh. and all the, you know, state funded uh, intellectuals right. so you got on both, that you side. You got your hand in right. both still, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let's continue. Another successful device was to instill fear of any alternative systems of rule or non-rule. The present rulers, it was maintained, supply to the citizens an essential service of which they should be most grateful, protection against sporadic criminals and marauders. For the state to preserve its own monopoly of predation did indeed see to it that the private and unsystemic crime was kept to a minimum. The state has always been jealous of its own preserve, especially has the state been successful in recent centuries in instilling fear of other state rulers. Since the land area of the globe has been parceled out amongst particular states, one of the basic doctrines of the state was to identify itself with the territory it governed. Since most men tend to love their homeland, the identification of that land and its people with the state was a means of making natural patriotism work to the state's advantage. If Ruritania was being attacked by Waldavia, the first task of the state and its intellectuals was to convince the people of Ruritania that the attack was really upon them, not simply upon the ruling caste. In this way, war between rulers was converted into a war between peoples, with each people coming to the defense of its rulers in the erroneous belief that the rulers were defending them. The defense of nationalism has 
has only been this defense of nationalism has only been successful in Western civilization in in recent centuries. It was not too long ago that the mass of subjects regarded wars as irrelevant battles between various sets of nobles. Right. I think what messed you up is it says this device, not defense. Uh, Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. The thing that was playing in my head while you're reading that, this land is your land. Mm-hmm. This land is my land from California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, and and that's such a good point because like, like we're born in California. It's California is like regarded as one of the like craziest states in the nation. Like yeah. the taxes, the, the property, just, everything. The, like California, if it broke off into its own country, would be in the top ten economies of the world. Yeah, like it's it's huge, but its state is also huge. Like the state government of California is crazy and yep. controlling. And Drew and I were just having a conversation on break about like the idea of like moving and all the expenses imposed. Yep. But anyway, like it's natural for people to like love where they were born sure. like you look around Absolutely. you like you're it's surrounded you're, by friends and you, family used to. you see these beautiful landscapes Absolutely. you learn to love where you come from and you, and you identify it. with it you right. take pride, you take in, pride it. in it yeah. and if the state and its intellectuals can successfully convince you that they are that and they represent that yep then you will be willing to defend them to do, yeah. when they are threatened by another state. Yep. Or the government itself, necessary, you know, in a sense. Right. Like so, what would happen with Texas or mm-hmm. the South if you were in the Civil War and all these other things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like if they were threatened, you know, by the government, you know, and they were willing to defend themselves. Yeah, or like 9-11, you know, like. Yeah. You know, some attack on this country gets everyone like riled up and proud. Like, because people are proud to be American. They're proud of where they come from. Like, they're proud of like the people and the relationships and, you know, but they identify the state of the United States of America with themselves and their land territory. And they assume any attack on the quote unquote government is an attack on them. Now, obviously, it's a little weirder in the case of 9 11 because it was an attack on a bunch of innocent people. Right. But it was the World Trade Center for a reason. But you got to think, like, the people that were, that were, if you were, like, the people who were, um, who were ready to defend, they were ready to, def- to defend the people. Yes, you have to serve the government in order to defend the people because of the way it's set up. Right. But that's their, that, that's, that's where. It, there is a natural the patriotism. Is. There's a natural pride. In, in your, and, in your, in your cohort, right? The right. people that make up your, your cohort. And there is a beautiful thing to like a young adult who's 20 years old and tough macho guy. And he wants to sign up for the military to protect the people he loves. And mm-hmm. that's how what he tells himself. Yeah. Right. Uh, but then he goes off and he goes to war and he doesn't know why he's fighting any wars. And there's a bunch of murder and stuff and he doesn't, he can't really connect how what he's doing overseas is actually protecting the people at home. And you know, it becomes a little less questionable why like there's so many, you know, the, the suicide rate in the military is so high and all that. Yeah. You, you disconnect yourself when you're not fighting on your land for your land. Right. 
there's yeah. a there's a fundamental difference between repelling an invading force and yeah. yeah. And I would say that But even it, still, even if it's an invading force, like penetrating into your land, like almost always it's a state against a state and it's rulers of one state trying to conquer the rulers of another state so that they can take over the spoils that state has over its own people. Exactly. Right? Like it's not actually them trying or wanting to affect the population, but in the 20th century with bombs and with like, Intercontinental ballistics. And yeah, all those the, like we ha- we now we have this term, um, the nukes and everything. Uh, what's the casualties? Uh, no, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, the term for like when civilians get hurt as part of like a military operation. Oh, um, are you talking about the new term for it? Yeah, yeah. Like, what's uh, is it not just innocent casualties? Yeah. I know there is a term. There's actually a term for. I'm searching for. I feel stupid for I can't pull it out, but <laughs> it'll come to us. Yeah. Uh anyway, many and subtle are the ideological weapons that the state has wielded through the centuries. One excellent weapon has been tradition. The longer that the rule of a state has been able to preserve itself, the more powerful this weapon. For then the X dynasty of Y state has the seeming weight of centuries of tradition behind it. Worship of one's ancestors then becomes a none too subtle means of worship of one's ancient rulers. What were you going to say? Collateral damage. Collateral damage. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, continue. The greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. There is no better way to stifle the criticism, that criticism, than to attack any isolated voice, any raiser of new doubts, as a profane violator of the wisdom of his ancestors. Another potent ideological force is to deprecate the individual and exalt the collectivity of a society. For since any given rule implies majority acceptance, any ideological danger to that rule can only start from one or a few independently thinking individuals. The new idea, much less the new critical idea, must needs begin as a small minority opinion. Therefore, the state must nip the view in the bud by ridiculing any view that defies the opinions of the mass. Listen only to your brothers or adjust to society, thus become the ideological weapons for crushing individual dissent. By such measures, the masses will never learn of the non-existence of their emperor's clothes. It is also important for the state to make its rule seem inevitable. Even if its reign is disliked, it will then be met with passive resignation as witness the familiar coupling of death and taxes, like I talked about earlier. Exactly. One method is to induce historiographical determinism as opposed to individual freedom of will. If the X dynasty rules us, this is because the inexorable laws of history or divine will or absolute or the material productive forces have so decreed and nothing any puny individuals may do can change this inevitable decree. Real quick, that reminds me of like, when you come to an election year and you start seeing like the states are defined as being this way or this way. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's a blue state or a red state. Right. Right. 
that just, yeah. that, and that, it feels inevitable. Like as it feels inevitable. me as a person in California, yeah, who's not left or right, sitting in this like ultra quote unquote blue state, like mm-hmm. it feels inevitable that this state is going, going to, to vote, vote in the way. blue. Yeah, and so, what do you, as the individual, even if have, I don't participate, yeah. which they would hope for, like at least I find it inevitable that yeah. like it is going to be a certain way. Yeah, that's the that's the resignation that they're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also important for the state to inculcate its subjects an aversion to any conspiracy theory of history. For a search for conspiracies means a search for motives and an attribution of responsibility for historical misdeeds. If, however, any tyranny imposed by the state or venality or aggressive war was caused not by the state rulers, but by mysterious and arcane social forces or by the imperfect state of the world, or if in some way everyone was responsible, we're all murderers, complains one's, or proclaims one slogan, then there's no point in the people becoming indignant, rising up against such misdeeds. Furthermore, an attack on conspiracy theories means that the subjects will become more gullible in believing the general welfare reasons that are always put forth by the state for engaging in any of its despotic actions. A conspiracy theory can unsettle the system by causing the public to doubt the state's ideological propaganda. Yeah, so this reminds me of like when you talk about war propaganda or war uh, dissent, right? You mm-hmm. talk about protests on war and you talk about people realizing that like, like what we, what the U S government, the military has done is unnecessary to other countries. Right. Right. Whatever it might be. Right. But that population that we like they see us all as murderers because we are a democratic state mm. so yeah, so yeah. then because of that because you know the what the view on that is, side can use that as ammunition to to their rally its population right. with its propaganda and at the same time at home for us we realize that that's happening we realize that these countries see us all as murderers because of what's happened, because we are a democratic state and we must have voted on this, right? Right. And so therefore we're all so we're all We're all responsible and therefore it gives us a powerless de- resignation again to the inevitability of, of these actions. and conquest. Exactly. And, yeah. Right? Like right. Like the never-ending terror wars ever since mm-hmm. 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was war in the Middle East after war in the Middle East and... Yeah. Another tried and true method for bending subjects to the state's will is inducing guilt. Any increase in private well-being can be attacked as unconscionable greed, materialism, or excessive affluence. Profit-making can be attacked as exploitation and usury. Mutually beneficial exchanges denounced as selfishness. And somehow with the conclusion always being drawn that more resources should be siphoned from the private to the public sector. The induced guilt makes the public more ready to do just that. For while individual persons tend to indulge in quote unquote selfish greed, the failure of the state's rulers to engage in exchanges is 
supposed to signify their devotion to higher and noble, nobler causes. Parasitic predation being apparently morally and aesthetically lofty as compared to peaceful and productive work. Yeah, that that makes me think of um, companies that go against the government. Mm. In a sense of like when it yeah. talks about the yeah. the like the, when you talk about like a company who who is gaining power and affluence based on their productivity, right? Right. They are gaining their own sense of political uh, political lenience because people are starting to, people obviously are paying that government or that the company enough money to get that. So they're, they like their product. They like their, their motto. They like their being, right? And if they're going against the ideals of the government, that's when this is instituted in a sense of right. like ma- labeling them as selfish, labeling them as materialistic, labeling them as excessive affluence, right? Like giving right. them these titles so that people and claiming that they, and that, and that's the, like the illusion of it is like in that it, it has the, in claiming that against someone else, it has the underlying assumption that you are not that. Yep. Right. Exactly. When in fact it's the state that is constantly gathering resources without producing anything in right. particular, and that's why it talks about like um, the parasitic predation of it. Like, mm-hmm. um, like instead of like acknowledging it uh, as far as idealistically, all it does is impose more will upon those specific companies, or it comes up with some new statute that limits the powers of companies of that statue, right? Right, right. It makes me think of like the intellectual class too, like the professors and yeah. all the like university people cuz they like I feel like a lot of these people sit on this like moral high horse of like I'm just a public service yeah. innocently spending my life pursuing intellectual matters to the benefit of all mankind. Mm-hmm. But if you tell any of them that you are anti-government, anti-tax, and you think that the size of the state and that the state shouldn't fund sciences, all of a sudden they go up in arms and like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like we need states have to fund these things or else society will collapse. Like yeah. we need these intellectual matters. That's how we, you know, like the people who talk about how like all the inventions that the Apollo mm-hmm. program gave to like the commercial public, how we got Tang from the Apollo program and stuff. That was only partially. Like, yeah, we and got... And Velcro. We got right. Velcro from the Apollo program. No, that was all from alien... Um, that was all from <laughs> alien um, spaceships that were... Um, yeah. <laughs> that were... Totally. Um, retrofit or what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? That's from back engineering. Back engineering yeah. alien spacecraft. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Sorry. We, uh, we love tangents here. In the present more secular age, the divine right of the state has been supplemented by the invocation of a new God, science. State rule is now proclaimed as being ultra scientific as constituting planning by experts. But while quote unquote reason is invoked more than in previous centuries, This is not the true reason of the individual and his exercise of free will. It is still collectivist and determinist, still implying holistic aggregates and coercive manipulation of passive subjects by their rulers. 
And this goes back to the whole thing with the economics episode, right? Where I talked about how like the Keynesians are all about like collectivizing, right? Like they're all about like analyzing the economy as a collective whole and, and showing these macroeconomic trends and saying we need to inject money and increase spending and blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Like they're, they're putting on, they're showing all these like mathematical formulas and, trying to justify it all based on this, but like the actual fact of the matter, like as the Austrians expose is like, no, the economy is individual people exchanging individual things that collectively adds up. But like, there is no collective. The collective is only derived from the the individuals, right? It has no existence without the individuals that make it up. Yep. Yeah, we're bridging eight and one here. How the boy's doing? I see you looking. Yeah, Sawyer, he woke up, but he also went back to sleep, so. Nice. Oh, well, hold on. (laughs) Well, we're actually over here. Okay, so maybe Um, we'll take a break real quick. Yeah, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back. Watching him head bob around the crib to see to find it. (laughs) As mean as that might sound, but yeah, it's funny. It is funny. He literally would sit up, cry, 
and then like look like he's laying down but his feet are like as if he's sitting up so he just like puts his his top half of his body down like try to like see if he could find it just like headbutts the headbutts the mattress (laughs) (laughs) all right we should probably go before i jinx it okay all right so (laughs) we were talking about uh in the more secular age and how they're using science more So the increasing use of scientific jargon has permitted the state's intellectuals to weave weave obscurantist apologia for state rule that would have only met with derision by the populace of a simpler age. I love that. Obscurantist apologia. I was going to say, you nailed that. (laughs) At least I couldn't have done better. (laughs) A robber who justified his theft by saying that he really helped his victims by spending... Giving a boost to the retail trade would find few converts. But when this theory is clothed in Keynesian equations with an impre- with impressive references to the multiplier effect, it unfortunately carries more conviction. And so the assault on common sense proceeds, each age performing the task in its own ways. Thus, ideological support being vital to the state, it must unceasingly try to impress the public with its quote-unquote legitimacy to distinguish its advocates from those of mere brigands. The unremitting determination of its assaults on common sense is no accident. For as Mencken vividly maintained, here's a quote from H.L. Mencken, the average man, whatever his errors otherwise, at least sees clearly that government is something lying outside him and thus outside the generality of his fellow men, that it is a separate, independent, and hostile power, only partly under his control and capable of doing him great harm. It is a fact of no significance that robbing the government is everywhere regarded as a crime of greater magnitude than robbing an individual or even a corporation. What lies behind all this? I believe it is a deep sense of the fundamental antagonism between the government and the people it governs. It is apprehended not as a a committee of citizens chosen to carry on the communal business of the whole population, but as a separate and autonomous corporation, mainly devoted to exploiting the population for the benefit of its own members. When a private citizen is robbed, a worthy man is deprived of the fruits of his industry and thrift. When the government is robbed, the worst that happens is that a certain is that certain rogues and loafers have less money to play with than they had before. The notion that they have earned that money is never entertained. Right. To most sensible men, it would seem ludicrous. Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah, yeah, it definitely <laughs> spells out the the hypocrisy, hypocrisies and the underlying just um, just. It just doesn't make sense, really. Like, right. you know, if you really sit down and think about it, like, a lot of these laws that are that pertain to the common man are not necessarily pertaining to them, and they sit above it because well, a lot of these laws are to collect the things that we have produced. Right. It's not something that they've produced because they're not producing anything necessarily other than the... But it's an interesting point, too, that, like... You get punished for messing yeah. with the government a lot more than you harshly. get punished for much harshly, much more harshly messing with other individuals or companies. Yeah, like if you were to go 
and loot a business during some riot, you're going to get, a lot of the times, you don't even get punished. Right. Because they, they see or it as like, like a massive Or like you write a bad check kind of and your bank is out some money. Like yeah, you can yeah, get yeah. fined. Maybe you can go to prison for, you know, yep. fraud or whatever. But yeah. if you... Uh, Do that with an individual business, right? You go and write a, back when checks were a thing, right? You go write a bad check at a grocery store. Yeah. You're, what, I mean, what's going to happen? Something, but... Yeah, but less than if you were to write a bad check to the IRS. Or if you were to uh, um, counterfeit U.S. dollars, exactly, then yeah. the freaking Secret Service is going to get involved right. and you're going to have federal charges. Right. So... Yeah, you should probably turn that off and on. Is that how that works? Yeah. Otherwise, I just don't have the remote on me, but... Yeah, I put my computer on a monitor so he can follow along with what I'm reading. And the monitor wants to go to sleep. It's coming back now. Is it? There it is. There we go. How the state transcends its limits. As Bertrand de Juvenel has sagely pointed out through the centuries men again? <laughs> <laughs> through the centuries men have formed concept, concepts designed to check and limit the exercise of state rule uh, and one after another the state using its intellectual allies has been able to transform these concepts into intellectual rubber stamps of legitimacy and virtue to attach to its decrees and actions Originally in Western Europe, the concept of divine sovereignty held that the kings may rule only according to divine law. Mm. The kings turned the concept into a rubber stamp of divine approval for any of the king's actions. The concept of parliamentary democracy began as a popular check upon the absolute monarchical rule. It ended with parliament being the essential part of the state and it's every act totally sovereign. As de Juvenal concludes, many writers on theories of sovereignty have worked out one of these restrictive devices. But in the end, every single such theory has sooner or later lost its original purpose and come to act merely as a springboard power by providing it with the power powerful aid of an invisible sovereign with whom it could in time successfully identify itself. So let's talk about the, the, the beginning of democracy, right? Yeah. And it started as a popular check upon absolute mon- monarchical, monarchical... Right, so like the original ideolo- ideological justification for the divine right of kings meant that they could only rule by divine law. And but it turned into was, anything that the king says is divine law. Right. Because he is divine. So it starts as a limit on his power and it ends up being corrupted into excusing anything he does. Mm. In the similar way, the U.S. Constitution started out as a powerful check on the growth of government. And now... It's a tool for them to it's use. It's just a tool to use for for the Supreme Court to say, oh, no, that's constitutional. As soon as the Supreme Court declares it constitutional, it's constitutional. I will say that the Constitution was written, um, like, in such a way that the common man 
especially because of the the tongue and the uh, use of words at the time was a mm-hmm. lot different than what we use now. That they can conflate a lot of what is said in the Constitution and 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 use it as a way like as general generalistic in a sense, like not mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah. So, for instance, it. in the Constitution, there's a clause that says that the federal government has the ability to regulate interstate commerce. Right. Okay. Which, you know, kind of makes sense if you have this like federation of states that are joining together and creating an entity to help them exist together. That entity, part of its job is making sure the states commerce between each other is civil. It didn't specifically say that it was to interject when there's a dispute. Right. So what has happened now is that any time anything commercial crosses state lines, it's so if I start a business and I distribute outside of yeah. my own state, the 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 Supreme Court and you know case law over time has now justified that because I'm doing business across state lines, it's I am now under regulation. federal jurisdiction yeah. and regulation, and so that ability to to regulate interstate commerce has turned into the ability to regulate anything if anything crosses a state no matter line. whether there's a dispute or whatever right right so i, I can it or can make to sense. provide for the common welfare is another clause right. in the government and has been used to like justify the department of education and like all of these things and like a lot of people have never like spent the time like looking at like how the constitution was constructed and what it's meant to do so our the, the U.S. government, the theory behind it is that the Constitution is um, a limited document that enumerates the rights that the government has. Yep. Anything not on the Constitution specifically spelled out that the federal government has this power yep. is reserved for the states and the people. Yep. But somehow that has been flipped because there is nothing in the Constitution about health care, about um, education, about vaccines, about, you know, like just the millions of the multiplicative ways of like every single branch of the government. Like all the different bureaucracies that govern our lives. You don't find the Constitution saying the government has that power, but somehow it has that power now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's because of the not because of, but it's the exploitation of the generality of it because you got to imagine the founding fathers not imagining the complexities of today's society, right? And not only that, but mm-hmm. over time, right? So there's stages of these things. So like over time when there's wars and then what I was going to say about the interstate commerce, right? Is like it it definitely it makes sense that it would be a, a a sense of like an arbiter between states, right? And when there's dis- disputes, like it makes sense that if one state is is trying to export X, you know, whatever um, um, good through the another state, that and that state sees that good as being some sort of hazard to their state and to the common welfare of those people. Mm-hmm. And that state says to the other state, we don't, or whatever. we don't like this thing being traveled through our state and mm-hmm. we won't allow it. And the other state's like, well, you know, I'm, j- I'm not, I'm, it's not ending up in your state. It's just traveling through your state. So what's the, what's the harm? Right. 
And so there's an arbiter, and the federal government is in the Constitution the arbiter of those disputes, and it should have some sort of regulations that that tells this state that it can do or not do this thing and within other states that have state law that says it's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's the that's what the constitution it, it doesn't specifically say that though and that's the problem you know and like, right. and that's the real rub and like the greater point like cuz your your point is true but like even the very words that are intended to yeah. limit get turned into excuses right. for ex- exerting power yeah. like the divine right thing yeah. it means you're supposed to only have the right to rule by divine law anything you do outside divine law is bs to anything you do just is divine law. Yeah. And like that, that that is the purview of the intellectuals, right? Like that is their job. Like is to like find the ways to like find it out. How to, how can I reverse psychology this? Like how can I make it pass some intellectual test that at least passes muster, at least leaves people mm -hmm. with like that resigned sighing, like, ugh. Well, and even then, right? And then it goes to propaganda, right? The engine of propaganda and how it can contribute to the the power at bees, mm-hmm. um, will, right? So you get the intellectuals to say a thing, but not everybody agrees, right? And then you use propaganda or the uh, the um, the idea like, what if you didn't have these regulations? Like, how bad would your life be if people were just, you know, passing cyanide or all these different like hazardous chemicals? Like, we need to, con- you know, like this is just the the thing between state lines. But like that's mm-hmm. a, like we need to be able to regulate this, and then you get everybody to just, you know, and then you you just continue to like constantly like your whole engine is to constantly berate the people who, like we said before are just busy living their lives. They right. want to live their lives. They're right. not they're not interested in the intricacies not of Not everyone things. has the time and energy to keep yeah. fully up to date on all what's the new way the government is trampling on rights. Right. 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 So it passes. Yep. Similarly with more specific doctrines, the natural rights of individual of the individual enshrined in John Locke and the Bill of Rights became a statist right to a job. Um, utilitarianism turned from arguments for liberty to arguments against resisting the state's invasion of liberty, etc. Exactly so, what you were just saying, yeah. Yeah. Certainly the most ambitious attempt to impose limits on the state has been the Bill of Rights and other restrictive parts of the American Constitution, in which written limits on government became the fundamental law to be interpreted by a judiciary supposedly independent of the other branches of government. All Americans are familiar with the process by which the construction of limits in the Constitution has been inexorably broadened over the last century, but few have been as keen as Professor Charles Black to see that the state has, in the process, largely transformed judicial review itself from a limiting device to yet another instrument of furnishing ideological legitimacy to the government's actions. For if a judicial decree of unconstitutional is a mighty check to the government power, an implicit or explicit verdict of constitutional is a mighty weapon for fostering public acceptance of ever greater government power. So 
the point being like, yeah, the judiciary is supposed to be quote unquote separate and independent. Yeah. And if, if it says this is unconstitutional, that's yeah, that's a powerful check against government growth. Right. But if it says constitutional, that's a powerful weapon to grow the government. Yep. And especially the way, you know, contemporarily, like you see like the political um and I hate going into like specifically political, but like it's you know, this is bipartisan in the sense like, you know, you get a specific president in the office and it has affiliations in, you know, um, you know, the different uh, branches of the government, right? You got the judicial, you got the um, legislative, legislative administrative. administrative, and then, you you know, you got the executive branch, mm-hmm. which is part of the, like, legislative is part of that. And no, so, it's administrative. Like, or administrative is an administrative, yeah, 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 not the legislative, but, um, <laughs> yeah. And you see, like, a lot of these like are going across branches, right? Mm-hmm. You see a lot of these p- individuals going across branches, mm-hmm. but you're not seeing, but because the government is seen as an entity, not as individuals, it's okay for individuals to cross branches of the government. And in a sense, can com- completely con- like misconstrue the ideals of this separate but equal, you know, or like the checks and balances, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah, I think I know what you mean. I, I, I think the point is even greater in like, it, it's used in like the revolving door sort of thing, but that's usually between like government and the industry that it's meant to regulate. Mm-hmm. I don't know how often. Well, I guess, but also you see. Ter- I guess the yeah, term you do see a lot of like senators and like Congress people ultimately like running for like president and stuff. But yeah, well, you don't necessarily see like too. presidents going the other direction. You don't necessarily no. like judges going back and forth. But, but that's because that's kind of the peak of it all, right? Like you see, right, the executive right. is more of the peak of it right. because that's like the the. But you do down. see like career politicians. That's and what I'm saying. Like the life revolves around like one office to the next, yeah. and jumping from this. And to I that. hope this continues and, like, to be a thing. Constantly trying to like upgrade themselves yeah. in status yeah. as far as yeah. what sort of yeah. political power they can wield. Right. And I think this, and I hope this point, you know, and I've seen this become more popular in the, in just in general is like the, the idea of like that term limits need to be enforced or at least instituted when it comes to like senators and like the entire like legislative side of things. Mm-hmm. Like you got these career politicians who are there for 40, 50 years, some of them. Yeah. And they're dying. They're going from like 20 something year old, you know, interns in this. And then they're dying in their positions, mm-hmm. you know, and like they're completely like, we're not, we're not allowing our government and we're not pushing for our government to be, um, have a turnover rate. Right. As much so as either they are doing a fantastic job or right. they happen to be in a position, position where they can like in a district that like is guaranteed to elect them and the political process means that no one no one in the opposite party in their district can beat them and no one on the same party in their district is going to compete against them because they're a shoe in. But and also in the judicial side 
right? Oh yeah, they're, like they're like right. a lot of these are life for judges. Life. Judges, yeah. judges yeah. are for life. Supreme Court is for life. Yeah, like unless they step down, mm-hmm. which is pretty it, unheard of. It, it, it happens. happens. Like yeah, some of them happens. will like retire, <clears throat> but yeah, a lot of them but, just die. And a lot of times they just, yeah, they die in their positions yeah. and then it finally gets taken over. But who's appointing these judges? Well, the president's job is to appoint them and then Congress to approve it. But yeah. So yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> Professor Black begins his analysis by pointing out the crucial necessity of legitimacy for any government to endure. This legitimation signifying basic majority acceptance of the government and its action. Acceptance of legitimacy becomes a particular problem in a country such as the United States, where substantive limitations are built into the theory on which the government rests. What is needed, adds Black, is a means by which the government can assure the public that its increasing powers are indeed constitutional, and this, he concludes, has been the major historical uh, function of the judicial review. L- let Black illustrate the problem. The supreme risk to the government is that of disaffection and a feeling of outrage widely disseminated throughout the population and a loss of moral authority by the government as such. However long it may be propped up by force or inertia or the lack of an appealing and immediately available alternative. Almost everybody living under a government of limited powers must sooner or later be subjected to some governmental action, which is, which as a matter of private opinion, he regards as outside the power of government or positively forbidden to the government. A man is drafted though. He finds nothing in the constitution about being drafted. A farmer is told how much wheat he can raise. He believes he discovered that some respectable lawyers believe with him that the government has no more right to tell him how much wheat he can grow than it has to tell his daughter whom she can marry. A man goes to federal penitentiary for saying what he wants to, and he paces his cell reciting, Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. A businessman is told what he can ask and must ask, but... Or for buttermilk. Yeah. So these are all examples of the government clearly having overstepped its constitutional bounds. Yeah. Absolutely. The danger is real enough that each of these people and who is not of their number will confront the concept of governmental limitation with the reality as he sees it of that flagrant overstepping of actual limits and draw the obvious conclusion as to the status of his government with respect to legitimacy. This danger is averted by the states propounding the doctrine that one agency must have the ultimate decision on constitutionality and that this agency in the last analysis must be part of the federal government. For whilst the seeming independence of the federal judiciary has played a vital part in making its actions virtually holy writ for the bulk of the people, it is also and ever true that the judiciary is part and parcel of the government apparatus and appointed by the executive and legislative branches. Black admits that this means that the state itself or the date the state has set itself up as a judge in its own cause, thus violating the basic um, juridical principle for aiming at just decisions. 
he brusquely denies the possibility of any alternative. So, yeah, a basic tenet of jurisprudence of of court and law and theory of justice is that you cannot be a judge in your own case. Right. Exactly. But the judiciary is a branch of the federal government, uh-huh. which gets to decide on whether the federal government is overstepping its bounds. Yeah. So whether or not it's quote unquote independent, which it isn't because it's appointed by the executive and legislative. Right. It That's what draws saying, its funds yeah. from the very taxes that the other branches exactly. do. Exactly. Its existence is tied to the existence of the other two and justified on the same documents and the same history. Yep. It is tied together, so it's not really independent. No, and you might see the judiciary branch um, rule against the government in some form in the sense of like certain executive actions, right? Mm-hmm. Like if a government or if a if a specific president might do some sort of executive function that is unconstitutional, but again, those are usually pretty far between, few and far between, and those are really the only times you see the 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 judicial branch really step out and go against its mm-hmm. own cohort, mm-hmm. and even then. It's Sometimes not it typically in things that really affect the common person. Yeah. Yeah. Usually those things pass. So Black adds, the problem then is to devise such governmental means of deciding as will hopefully reduce the tolerable minimum to a tolerable minimum, the intensity of the objection that government is judge in its own cause. Having done this, you can only hope that this objection, though theoretically still tenable, will practically lose enough of its force that the legitimating work of the deciding institution can win acceptance. Yeah, so they essentially, he's just saying that they tried to dress it up in like, fancy enough theory that like kind of gets across the idea like like this is as independent as we can make it yeah you know well a lot of times they like the um they'll they'll rule based on a lot of other rulings too right like they rule they'll rule on specific cases based on a lot of their past cases whether it directly correlates or whether it's some kind of like substance subcategory of like a, a pri- previous ruling, you know? Yeah. And if there's enough of those, they'll like rule based on like that. And if it's convenient, it'll, it'll make some big change, you know, it can make some big change. Right. In the last analysis, black finds the achievement of justice and legitimacy from the state's perpetual judging of its own cause as something of a miracle. Applying his thesis to the famous conflict between the Supreme Court and the New Deal, Professor Black keenly chides his fellow pro-New Deal colleagues for their short-sightedness in denouncing judicial obstruction. So this is a quote from Black. The standard version of the story of the New Deal and the court, though accurate in its way, displaces the emphasis. It concentrates on the difficulties it almost forgets how the whole thing turned out. 
the upshot of the matter was, and this is what I like to emphasize, that after some 24 months of balking, the Supreme Court, without a single change in the law of its composition, or indeed in its actual manning, placed the affirmative stamp of legitimacy on the New Deal and on the whole new conception of government in America. That's, yeah. And the New Deal isn't, yeah, the New Deal was just a law. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, uh, it wasn't an amendment to the Constitution. And it was, it gave the federal government like vast sweeping power over controlling the economy. So this was like the, the bit of legislation that, well, not bit, it was this huge chunk of legislation that came out with Roosevelt out of the Great Depression. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah and that's yeah. what gave the government the power to like tell farmers how much they can grow, tell farmers to like destroy crops, set price fixing, like set certain prices on certain items. And it was all like theoretically to like get us out of this Great Depression. Right. But it was all this vast power that the government never had and is not in the Constitution. Yeah. But the Supreme Court deliberated for a long time on it and then found it constitutional. Well, and that goes back to the example of like it's 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 simply unconstitutional for a farmer to be told how much it can grow. Right. If it's being grown on its own land. Right. That's completely unconstitutional and it makes no sense for an economy. If you're right, like you're mm-hmm. growing a resource and you're able to provide it if you have excess you're going to be told to burn it or get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we talking about? You can you can put that into new markets or different markets or international, whatever it might be. You can do that individually. You don't. Need and a lot of people don't understand that this to. actually still happens to this day. Yeah, like absolutely. The, uh, yeah, that's why there's the farmers go on strike a lot. Of time uh, what's a lot the of- institution? The agriculture federal. It's not the FDA. But anyway, there's a whichever at institution has the control. Whatever over acronym. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they actually still USDA. This, yeah, yeah. They still have the ability to. Do you have your phone near the interface? It's causing these weird glitches. I thought it was just this this plug. Oh, I think it's the radio from the phone, like interfering with the interface. I don't know. I wasn't doing that before. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, still to this day, like there is certain crops that get destroyed because of like the justification being that they're trying to uh, keep a crop at a certain trading price. Yeah. For the benefit of the farmers, right? But what it really results in is like oranges being burned to keep the price of orange juice up and stuff like that. For what reason other than to... So that the farmers who grow oranges get more per orange when they sell them. It's but, just, it's But crazy. it doesn't make sense if you have... It's all based on like out. Keynesian economics and stuff yeah. though. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't like feasibly, like if you have a, a like a large, like we're talking about like pro- producing a, a thing that humans can eat, Right. At the same time of this bullshit happening in our in you know in whatever government that's instituting this, we have hunger around mm-hmm. the world. We have 
in our in countries that are instituting this, we have hunger, people who can't eat, and you're just going to pretend that like right. producing more and being able to produce but it at a lower price. Their argument is that if they give it away for free or if they trade it at a lower price to other people, that will affect the market price for oranges, thus making farmers be able to get less money for their oranges overall. No, it means that you're <laughs> able to produce a lot for for less, and right. that means it makes it available to people at a right. lower price. And that it just it, it, but it, that all falls back into the point, right? Like yeah, it falls right, back absolutely. into the point of like that's the job of the intellectuals is to like come up with some like complex economic justification for why this could plausibly do good do some yeah. sort of good for some people and if you can't come at them with like a, a validated argument against them then like they're right. just gonna move on and, and if it's enough for people who aren't totally paying attention but are voting yep. then it's enough to pass a muster right and that was that goes back to our first episode too where you talk about these like these papers being done by a lot of these intellectuals that are that are p hacked or they're like you know they're like there isn't there is a reason for these because they get you know and 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 also the fact that a lot of these um ideas that are put out in these papers that may have instrumentally funded like um had a lot to do with what a lot of these ideas that the government instituted they aren't able to be refuted because nobody's going to fund somebody who's putting out a paper to refute another person's position that is accepted right. by the paying customer, which right. is the government. Right. So, yeah. That, that brings it back to that first episode we were talking about, like the limits of scientific certainty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it, check that episode out if you haven't already. In this way, the Supreme Court was able to put the quietus on large body of Americans who had the strong constitutional objections to the New Deal. So this is back to Black. Mm-hmm. Of course, not everyone was satisfied. The Bonnie Prince, the Bonnie Prince Charlie of constitutionality, commanded laissez-faire, still stirs the hearts of. What is this sentence? <laughs> the I mean, Bonnie Prince Charlie. What is that? that is that a ref- Is of, that a cultural reference that, that I must don't get? Be some sort of reference. The Bonnie Prince Charlie of constitutionally commanded laissez-faire still stirs the hearts of a few zealots in the highlands of choleric unreality. But there is no longer any significant or dangerous public doubt as to the constitutional power of Congress to deal as it does with the national economy. So what I found quickly is this person named Charles Edward Stewart during his lifetime was known, was also known as the young pretender. Mm. But in, in popular memory, he is known as Bonnie Prince Charlie so I'm guessing it's the pretender. Like so a, like it, a, it's saying, yeah. So it's it's like saying that these people who are still pretending that laissez-faire yeah. is important, and they still have some people on their side, but there's no right. longer significant or dangerous public doubt right. as to the power of Congress to deal with the economy as it does. 
We had no means other than the Supreme Court for imparting legitimacy to the New Deal. As Black recognizes one major political theorist who recognized, and largely in advance, the glaring loophole in a constitutional limit on government of placing the ultimate interpreting power in the Supreme Court was John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was not content with the miracle, but instead proceeded to a profound analysis of the constitutional problem. His disquisition, in his disquisition, Calhoun demonstrated the inherent tendency of the state to break through the limits of such a constitution. So this is Calhoun. A written constitution certainly has many and considerable advantages, but it is a great mistake to suppose that the mere insertion of provisions to restrict and limit power of the government without investing those for whose protection they are inserted with the means of enforcing their observance will be sufficient to prevent the major and dominant party from abusing its powers. So it's saying if the idea is that you're imparting limits on the government against so that the government can't use these powers against the people, if you're not giving the people the power, the power to the check time. the government, then ultimately yeah, yeah. they're gonna yeah. steamroll over it. You're giving the government in a separate branch power to limit the government, but the people who are supposed but to they're have not this the power, ones at the at odds with the government for right. those power decisions. Right. right. It's the, people the people are and the people don't have the power intrinsically in the constitution. Right. So not, it's not spelled out. Right. So back to Calhoun being the party in uh, dominant whoop. being the party in possession of the government, they will from the same constitution of man, which makes government necessary to protect society, be in favor of the powers granted by the constitution and opposed to the restrictions intended to limit them. The minor or weaker party on the contrary would take the opposite direction and regard them the restrictions as essential to their protection against the dominant party. But where there are no means by which they could compel the major party to observe the restrictions, the only resort left to them would be a strict construction of the constitution to this. The major party would oppose a liberal construction. It would be construction against construction. The one to contract the other one to enlarge the power of the government to the utmost. But of what possible avail could be the strict construction of the minor party be against the liberal construction of the major, when the one would have all the power of the government to carry its construction into effect and the other be deprived of all means of enforcing its construction? In a context so unequal, the result would not be doubtful. The party in favor of the restrictions would be overpowered. The end of the contest would be the subversion of the Constitution. The restrictions would ultimately be annulled and the government would be converted into one of unlimited power. So Boom, essentially, yeah. do you follow what that's saying? Yeah, it's absolutely. Essentially it's a saying construction like, going on, but yeah, no, I follow. <laughs> so saying you got, let's say in modern days, you got Democrats and Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. So right now it's the Democrats in power. Sometimes it's the Republicans, sometimes it's the Democrats. And this is what actually happens in practice. Anytime the Democrats are in power, they always try and push stuff that the Democrats want. Yeah. Okay. And then the, you'll have the Republicans on the other side who are not in power right now because they lost 
the presidency and they're not in control of the Congress or whatever at the moment. And they'll, they'll put up all these, oh, that what you guys are trying to do, what you Democrats are trying to do is unconstitutional, blah, blah, blah. And they'll argue against it and try and try and like kick and scream, but they don't have the power right now. Right. And so the Democrats will pass something. And then when the Republicans become in power, they'll have their own things that they want to pass. Yep. And then, but because they're in power, the Democrats, their they're only the same thing. argument against it is like, what you guys are doing is evil and unconstitutional and blah, 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 blah. But they're not in power. So the Republicans will pass something and it goes back and forth. It's like, it's like a uh, pro wrestling, right? Like, yeah. You got you got the good guys and the bad guys, and yep. they hate each other on screen. But like, it's all just an act. It's just a way to divide it. It's a way to like get progress on one side of things. Yeah, because how often? Because and then when the power shifts over to the other party, get progress on other things. But you know, what you never see, you never really see a rolling back. Yeah, you never see repeals. Yeah, the government only Rarely ever grows repeals. in power. Yep. I was going to say that too. Uh, the repealing of what the previous, um, <clears throat> the previous party in power has done is very rare, mm-hmm. and usually it's only when the um, the third party, the the judicial or the the Congress, is striking something down because of their overwhelming um, support in favor or or um, of striking it down it's never it's rarely done by the executive branch immediately upon arriving in the white house right for, you know right you and, know and it's very obvious but at the same it, time it's a it's, ratcheting mechanism you know yeah, like exactly. it's a way it's to a, apply force a little bit at a time but never give on yep. on the growth and it makes it easier achieved. each time each time you do it it makes it easier for the next turn Yeah. So, I want to keep going, but we're like kind of way over. We're pretty far over, but I think we could definitely make. I think we could definitely do this in a, in another podcast, and I think we're going to continue with this libertarian theme. Yeah, yeah, because I've barely like scratched the surface of where we want to go with this. Because yeah, like this is all like criticizing yeah the state yeah, but where this ultimately leads in the long run is to the question of should a state even exist? And right. we haven't even and really tackled And does it need to that. exist? Right. And if it doesn't, like what kind, what could life look like what with, would a society without it? Look like? Would it just be chaos? Or is it possible that mankind can create structures to govern themselves peacefully Privately. without some sort of yeah. man in power the right. man in the room with the gun holding right. everyone hostage. Yeah, could you could you imagine a world where private enterprise, right? The the pursuits of private individuals actually is you know, in a sense can do the function of the government without the need of like the centralized aspect of it. Right. Like, you know, the needs of the people are directly dictate what is what the um, the powerful do, right? In a sense, mm-hmm. right? You think the people with guns, or the people that protect us, they are com- com- like directly um, affected by what the people specifically need, right? Like we need borders. We need not borders specifically, but we need we need a way to defend ourselves if we are attacked by some f- sort of, you know, 
Right. Marauder. And everyone knows that and feels that. And so because of that necessity, they think the only way to achieve that is the way we're currently achieving it, yeah. which is having a state. Right. Or having a state. So even if it's not yeah. this state, like even people who are like over where the United States is or wherever government you live in, if you're like over with how it's, how it's working and you're like, Oh man, it is just broken. And we like seldom do people think that the solution is to just not have a state. They usually think, Oh, well we can create one that's different, but but you're like, you're creating the the point of, of this. And it hasn't fully gotten there yet, but like, is that you're just, substituting one problem for another and like it it's it's the institution itself and not the specific instance of it that is the problem yeah it's not like the founding fathers could have used a little bit of different language and we wouldn't be in this situation maybe right. we would have gotten here at a different pace or whatever yeah, it could have been you know but 20, it, it's 30. inevitable by the nature of what a state is that it will continue to grow justify its legitimacy and constantly overstep over boundaries placed up by the people that it's meant to govern yep. so yeah, I think this has been a good episode. I think we uh, definitely got some uh, bases, you know, some groundwork laid for this idea. And I hope people enjoyed it. And I hope you do some research uh, on these topics yourselves. And, yeah, so uh, you see what you think about it. And- we'll link, uh, obviously, to this uh, article that we're reading. And um, yeah. we will. Um, yeah, if you're watching Talk this on YouTube, some more. yeah, if you're looking at this on YouTube and Rumble, um, I know we like to put a lot of images in a lot of those nowadays, but <laughs> this might be a difficult one. But we could we can come up with some. We'll come up with something. Come up with some cool ones. Um, also, <laughs> we're I'm still at the moment of recording, working on fixing the links. Oh yeah, for the um, different for the show notes. Yeah, so like if you're in Apple Podcasts or whatever, and you go to look at our show notes, they get cut off with like a dot dot dot. And I'm trying to get that fixed. Yeah. If you're running into that and you want to see the links that we're putting, um, you can click the episode title, and it should link you to our website to the episode page, or you can just go to dualitycheck.net and then go to the episode, um, and you'll see all the links and all the sources and. YouTube also allows us. Oh, we don't put the links on YouTube though, do we? Yeah, we're still not like whatever partner, YouTube partners or whatever. So we have very limited powers for like linking to external sites from YouTube. Yeah, that's right. Um, We'll get there. We don't have the privilege yet. We just need your help. Yep. So uh, if you're listening on YouTube, give us a like, give us a subscribe, yep. send a comment, like let's just open the conversation, send us an email, um, hosts at dualitycheck.net. Yep. Or you can reach us on Facebook or Instagram. You can, uh, you know, message us on any of those platforms and we'll, we'll see it. You can um, help yep. us out a lot if you're on uh listening on any Apple device, go to app, the iTunes or Apple podcast and you can rate the episode or rate the podcast. Give us a review. Yeah. Leave some comments, give us a high rating and give us a little description. It would really help us grow and reach more ears. Absolutely. Um, That's what we're here for. We want to build a community of people who are interested in opening their mind to different ideas yeah. like we're doing just by making this podcast ourselves, Right. We're allowing ourselves to open it up.
it's been uh, it's been fun, y'all, and been we fun. will uh, two and a half see hours you guys wow. in the next one. <laughs> Man, if you made it to this point, yeah, bravo, bravo, appreciate you. And we'll see you next we'll week. See you next week. Adios. Later.